I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. The National Advisory Council, or NAC, consists of 35 members representing a wide range of geographic and professional backgrounds and is tasked with advising the FEMA administrator on all aspects of emergency management. The NAC held its first meeting of this year in June in Boise, Idaho. Members shared progress reports from the Equity Working Group, as well as from the Subcommittee on Workforce, Climate, and Readiness. They also took part in a FEMA leader panel discussion and a wildfire panel discussion and engaged in conversation with the FEMA administrator on the council's future direction. On this episode, we turn it over to our colleagues from FEMA Region 10, which includes Idaho, who spoke with several members of the council, as well as the FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell, to discuss the importance of the NAC and how the field of emergency management is changing to meet the challenges of the future. I'm Rob Long, and I am the director of the office that supports the National Advisory Council, so Office of the National Advisory Council. Can you start by telling us how you got involved with the NAC? I've been involved with the NAC for a little over three years. I began with FEMA some many years ago thinking, you know, I can complain about the federal government all I want to, but at some point I'm just going to have to dive in and try to help. And I found that the people in FEMA were receptive to that. So I was constantly put into places where I was trying to solve sticky problems. And the NAC is the ultimate place to solve sticky problems. Maybe you can explain a little more about why the NAC is associated with solving problems. So the NAC came into existence due to the post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act of 2007, that it was a response to many of the failures that happened during the Hurricane Katrina incidents. One of the things that was seen as necessary was a much more direct connection with the very top of emergency management in the United States, which is the head of agency to FEMA, uh, to a group of people that were not only emergency managers, but also stood in adjacent areas such as public health, such as disability and functional access, tribal elected officials, local uh, non-elected officials, there is a large list in the legislation that brought the NAC into existence. So unlike other FACA bodies, Federal Advisory Committee Act bodies, the NAC's been around for 15 years. Many FACA bodies are stood up and sunset within two years, and they're given a single question to answer. It might be about whether or not a particular drug is effective, and you'll bring doctors together to give it an evaluation. But the NAC is different because the legislation says it's going to be in existence. Every two years, the secretary of DHS signs it back into existence so that we have a charter. And in that charter are these rules about what we're going to do. And that comes from the legislation. And that Legislation says that the NAC will review all aspects of emergency management. And that is profound because most committees are asked a very specific question. So instead, we get together these 35 folks who come from emergency management and adjacent fields, and in some cases are completely outside of emergency management because we need a broad array of voices, particularly as the 
set of hazards and risks that we look at expand to become even more confounding than the previous decade or many decades ago. And as FEMA's mission evolves in, in helping people before, during, and after disaster, what the NAC decides to look at and what the NAC is asked to look at by the administrator can really change quite a bit from year to year, which makes it, makes it very exciting, makes it one of the best places, I, in my opinion, to be in government to solve really complex problems and make recommendations to the FEMA administrator on that. And that's what the NAC does. So they make recommendations to the FEMA administrator on how to solve the problems from the state, local, tribal, territorial perspective. I wonder if you can speak to some of the recommendations that have come out of the NAC or perhaps how those recommendations have been received or implemented. Sometimes the recommendations that come out of the NAC are just immediately actionable. They make a lot of sense. One of them that came long before I arrived uh, as part of the office of the NAC was a recommendation to have tribal liaisons in each of the regions. It was sort of a no-brainer. Why hadn't we thought of that before? So sometimes it's that simple. We're just connecting need with thought done. There have been other times where we have, for instance, talked with the head of individual assistance and the NAC was speaking their minds and said, you know, we need to do something about folks that are multi-generational family households that don't have clear property documentation ownership in the context of disasters. And before the NAC could even finish writing the recommendation, FEMA said, yep, we can do that. And that was a huge change that the administrator talked about earlier today and was in the 2021 report from the NAC. Many thanks to Rob Long for his comments. Let's now switch to a conversation we had with Carrie Speranza. As a local emergency manager in an urban environment, she shares how the problems and ultimately opportunities she's encountered in her job has motivated her to join the NAC. Yes, uh, my name is Carrie Speranza. I am currently the deputy director for the DC Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. So I bring the state, local, big city point of view to the National Advisory Council as an emergency manager. How did you get involved in emergency management? I fell into it <laughs> by accident. I actually went to college for an environmental science degree, and it happened to be during a very busy hurricane year, the year that I graduated, and I signed on to be a FEMA contractor and was deployed into the field for two years doing long-term recovery work. Didn't even know what emergency management was at the time. I was you know, bright-eyed 22-year-old person <laughs> and ended up spending two years in the field uh, responding to seven different storms and that, that had me hooked. What was it about emergency management that hooked you? Well, it's interesting because what hooked me were the issues and problems that I saw in the field. And when you're in the thick of response and long-term recovery, the sad part is a lot of times what you see are the issues and the problems that um, the survivors are going through at the time. And I felt having witnessed so many different storms and so many different jurisdictions that I could play a part in solving some of the problems that the profession has that impacts not just survivors, but your first responders and the entire apparatus that wraps around uh, disaster response and recovery. So I saw myself as just wanting to help solve problems which is also why I applied to the NAC. So what is the NAC and how are they helpful to FEMA? 
What I would tell them is it's a group of brilliant experts in their field. Not all of them are emergency managers, but they're tangentially related to the field of emergency management. We have public health experts. We have climate change experts. Um, we, you know, we also have the emergency managers. We have uh, tribal liaisons as well. And what we do is we come around the table every other week and talk about the biggest, most complex problems that the, the field and FEMA specifically is experiencing. And we go down the rabbit hole of each wicked problem and try to come up with what we think are a series of recommendations that we provide to FEMA on an annual basis and uh, try to help solve problems. And that's really what we do. I wonder if you can speak to a task that was assigned to the NAC that you had a hand in dealing with. So I'm in my third year currently, and the first two years I was on the equity subcommittee. And the first year of that subcommittee, our charge was to define equity for not just FEMA, but emergency management. Yeah, it's, that's a huge uh, task <laughs> and ask. And it, we spent a lot of time, many, many months, talking to so many different experts in the field on what it could mean. And at the end, I believe it was the 2020 plan, we, we did provide uh, a definition for what equity could mean for FEMA and the field of emergency management. And from that time on, we have influenced policy decisions at the national level for things like the individual assistance program based upon that definition alone. And we've been, uh, you know, the administrator was briefing out this morning how many different policy changes have affected the survivors and homeowners across the country who've been able to get the benefits of assistance post-disaster simply because of those changes. And because we were able to articulate what equity meant from a program administration standpoint. What do you think is one of the biggest challenges the emergency management community faces in the coming years? So as an emergency manager in a big city location, for me, I have a, I have a biased opinion, but my, my opinion is the workforce challenge. It's retention, it's burnout. And we're seeing that across the country, both public and private sector. And I know that FEMA is, is experiencing that as well. And I think, you know, we are also shifting in our role as emergency managers, which also makes it different. So not only have we just experienced two years of the most complex disaster as a, as a world, um, but we as emergency managers have been asked to step up and solve challenges and, and problems that we've never had to solve before in areas that are not traditionally emergency management. They don't fall cleanly into an emergency support function bucket, right? And yet it's been thrown upon, you know, the opioid epidemic, homelessness, pandemic, all of these things. And so you couple that with having worked 24 seven for two years, and we have a massive challenge in front of us. And so I think that's the most pressing issue right now is making sure that we're in a good headspace, making sure that we're being fulfilled as a profession and then also fulfilling the needs that the country needs us to fill as emergency managers. Finally, how do you think FEMA and emergency managers around the nation will need to evolve to meet the changing needs of people and communities? I really appreciate this question. And when I think about the response, my first reaction is flexibility. So the threat environment is dynamic and it's changing in ways that society doesn't even expect <laughs> at a pace that we certainly can't keep up with. And so when I think about 
moving forward and, and how we need to evolve to be better, we need to be flexible. I think as emergency managers, we've always had to follow the checklist of steps one through 10 and how we need to do this and follow the planning P. And we know at the end of our 12-hour shift, we've done those things according to that checklist. And I think what the world is telling us is uh, sometimes things can't fit into a checklist anymore, and we need to we need to adapt to that. And I think the change that happened at the policy level last fall with the individual assistance program, for example, and, and FEMA made the wonderful decision to lift the burden of providing of, of having survivors needing to provide the documentation for home ownership to just get individual assistance is a great example of being flexible. We've got to find areas in the bureaucracy, in the organization where we have the ability to make change and be flexible because the threat environment certainly isn't letting up anytime soon. The state of Idaho hosted the NAC spring meeting this year. We took some time to speak with Brad Ritchie, the director of Idaho's Office of Emergency Management. My name is Brad Ritchie. I'm the director of the Office of Emergency Management and uh, Idaho's governor's Homeland Security Advisor. What inspired you to join the National Advisory Council? I always look for an opportunity to expand what my vision could be for an agency, for a group, and an opportunity to provide direct input to the FEMA administrator, as well as some of the FEMA staff. That opportunity is incredible that's being offered through the NAC. When we were talking earlier, you spoke about the RAND study with regard to FEMA. Can you explain what that study looked at and how the NAC used the results from that study? Well, the RAND study took a look at uh, FEMA operations from an academic perspective and looked at uh, programs that were, were inexistent, how they overlapped or didn't overlap, how the responsibilities overlapped or didn't overlap, and highlighted some opportunities to combine certain things to to make them more efficient, more innovative, and more interactive across the board and not just one objective. We were able to go in, take a look at the 15 um, projects that could be evaluated, and we ranked those and prioritized those at a different level, our level in the NAC on the subcommittee. And I think that has made an impression on the FEMA administrator and helped highlight maybe an item or two that was not as high a priority as it now will be. What are the primary natural disaster risks in the state of Idaho, and what is the state doing to help mitigate those risks? I would tell you that if we look at the risk and hazards across the state, we have most of the normal natural hazards that any other state does, uh, with the exception that we have two faults within the state earthquake faults, so we have an earthquake threat that's out there, and we have wildfire. And again, when we look at the biggest threat, it would be wildfire, flooding, and again, those type of disasters, landslides associated with either wildfire or flooding. And then we're everything that we're doing is evaluating what we can do at the local level to help the local communities do the best they possibly can handling a situation that can be uh, overwhelming to them. I will tell you, after I was on the job two weeks later, we had a fire that burnt 1.2 million acres. 
So based on that, I learned about wildfire right off the bat, uh, the good, the not so good, and how we can improve response across Idaho. Idaho is a pretty rural state. Can you speak to this and how it affects your ability to respond to and recover from disasters? From the state perspective, I try to think about some of the smaller communities that I represent. We only have a population base of 1.8 million. And from the 1.8 million, 800,000 live in the valley here. Yeah. So you can see the, the million people that are left are scattered throughout the state in very small, very rural communities. We have one county the size of Rhode Island that has a population of 500 people. Uh, we have another county that's the size of Massachusetts that only has 16,000 people. So when you look at the, the mass of land and the area of responsibility that they take on, the tax base in which they do or don't have to provide uh, public safety across the county, yeah. they, they end up relying on the same person that's a road, road and bridge person, may also be the planning and zoning person, that may also be the snow removal person in the wintertime. So from my position on the NAC, I've tried to make sure that the voice of those communities have been heard. Continuing our discussion on small communities, we welcome Jeff Hansen from the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Jeff Hansen, I am the Director of Community Protection for the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Um, so within that role, I kind of encompass a few different hats. Uh, I oversee the Office of Emergency Management, the Office of the Fire Marshal, and Department of Criminal Justice for the tribe. Um, currently, I serve as the vice chair for the NAC. I've been with uh, the NAC for going on eight years. Can you give us a visual of where the Choctaw Nation is and what kind of disasters you face? The Choctaw Nation is um, in the southeast corner of Oklahoma. Uh, we have a, almost right at about 11,000 square miles of reservation there uh, in southeast Oklahoma. Uh, emergency management for the tribe, um, and I think this is probably a key thing across the board in Indian country, uh, is a developing function within the tribes. Where I'm at, we deal with a lot of uh, tornado, heavy wind uh, type severe storms. Uh, ice is always a problem. Uh, we get a lot of ice storms during the winters. Um, occasionally, we will get major snows, uh, but but that's kind of less frequent. So really the what that looks like for us is just coordinating the resources uh, to respond to that emergency, um, deal with uh, the disaster impacts on our citizens and on our government. So we may be sending resources to deal with uh, one of our facilities in, in a certain area, but we also are sending additional resources to deal directly with our citizens. We've We've been through several disaster declarations, either as a sub-applicant sub to the state or as a direct applicant to FEMA. But I think in a, a, in a lot of those situations, we don't necessarily rise to the level of like an individual assistance type disaster because it is very rural. Um, so uh, speaking with my chief uh, years ago, we were able to actually establish our own individual assistance program that we implement when we get uh, any kind of activity. We want to make sure we're doing everything we can to help our, our citizens, uh, both young and, and our elders, uh, survive. How have you seen the National Advisory Council be beneficial to the tribe? 
So I think one of the big things that we've seen is um, an intentional um, effort to engage uh, in Indian country. Over the years, we've had to bring up recommendations, uh, sometimes repeatedly, but ultimately I think we've gotten the attention from FEMA headquarters uh, and that this is a marginalized community that needs assistance following a disaster. But ultimately, we may be a marginalized community, but we're a very resilient community. And, and I think one of the things is I talk with emergency managers from around the nation in Indian country, we don't want to be looked at as uh, just another group that has to get some assistance. We want to be an asset for FEMA as well. And so really kind of bringing to the forefront, look, what does it take to get the capacity in Indian country? We want, we want to be the, the call that a state governor says, hey, I need help over here. Can you send X, Y, and Z? We want to make an impact, a broader impact. And I think that's just the culture of Native American culture across the board. They want to help the community. From the NAC meetings over the last few days, what excites you the most? I think ultimately um, looking at how FEMA can really get resources and, and address issues from an equitable perspective. It's, it's interesting because we were talking about equity three years ago. Uh, this came out of a, a conversation between myself and, and uh, Paul Downing talking about, you know, the marginalized communities. And it's not just about tribes, but any marginalized community that those people matter. And we've got to intentionally address those issues. We're seeing over the last couple of years now a broader conversation about equity. We're starting to see some purpose and some drive to really address those those capability gaps and and. Uh, access gaps across the board. What innovative ideas do you know of that could really help shape emergency management in the future? I don't know that it's necessarily an innovative idea, but I think it's one that is is probably missed quite often, and that is um, uh, really just stakeholder engagement. Bringing, bringing people to the table, uh, even if you don't necessarily know that they may have a resource or a capability to bring their insight can dramatically shape the way you address a particular issue down the road. You know, it's it's something I preach with my folks there back at the tribe is understanding and knowing what your blind spots are. And in order to see that, you've got to bring in a variety of, of stakeholders that have different viewpoints. That's how we're going to uh, close the gap between resources and resiliency. What sort of recommendations has the NAC made that have helped to streamline FEMA's processes? One of the recommendations we provided last fall was just that, to get to yes. You know, ultimately, the, the, the objective there is not to go the safe route and say no. It's figure out how to get to, to that point where assistance can be delivered. Um, and, and an example I use is a program that we did during the, the COVID emergency where to keep our elders from being out and exposed, uh, we provided cards, uh, funding to those individuals um, so that they could order food online. And so it was our, we called it our food security program. Well, initially when we submitted that, you know, the, the immediate answer is like, we can't do that. It took some time and it took some effort, but we got, we got to the point of yes. We were able to get that as a part of our declaration. Very big program. We spent a lot of money doing it, but it was very, very successful to the point that the tribe is actually looking at continuing that, a, a similar version of that program. And so that's just one of those opportunities that where the knee-jerk reaction might be, no, there's no way we can do that. There's still a lot of flexibility in, in the policy. It may not be regulation. It may just be an internal policy. You got a lot of flexibility there.
with FEMA being able to take a deeper look at some of that stuff, I think we'll, you'll get pretty far. And finally, we turn our attention to FEMA's administrator, Deanne Criswell. Can you tell us a little bit about the course of your career and what led you to becoming FEMA's administrator? Uh, yeah, so I've been in kind of the public safety world for just under 30 years now. Started out as a firefighter, actually first as a firefighter with the Colorado Air National Guard and then a firefighter with the city of Aurora in Colorado. During my time as a firefighter there, uh, our emergency management position fell underneath the fire chief. And when that position became open, um, I had asked if I could um, be considered for that role. And so that was my entry into emergency management. Uh, my first thing that I dealt with was receiving evacuees from Hurricane Katrina just a couple of months after I took on the role. So I had this mass care mission and uh, it really just energized my um, desire to learn more about this field and has led me to where I'm at today. Is there anything you miss about being a firefighter and local emergency manager? I, so I loved being a firefighter. Uh, it was great. I think the thing that was um, exciting about being a firefighter is that you actually had opportunities to do different things, right? So I started as a firefighter, then I uh, became a paramedic. I uh, worked at our training academy and trained new firefighters. I spent a little bit of time on our hazmat team. And so there was just always a lot of variety, which then led me into the emergency management piece. Um, I think that variety was great. I think you get that same variety in emergency management as well. I think, you know, what I miss, I don't know if there's anything necessarily that I miss. I think what's really different is the, um, is the, the, just the scope and the magnitude of the types of issues and problems that you're dealing with. Um, what I appreciate the most about my past is the fact that I can bring that local perspective into this role now. Right. And it really helps me um, stay focused and centered um, and keeping um, the way that we're delivering our programs grounded um, in a sense where it's helping people, right, helping our customers, making their life easier. Having come from an emergency management office of two and a half, um, you can imagine every time a new program comes out from FEMA and a new requirement, I, I'm not getting any more people in that small staff to have to implement it. Right. And so keeping that mindset, keeping that knowledge front and center really helps me make sure that we're not putting additional burden on our customers. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the NAC. As the FEMA administrator, why is the NAC important to you? The NAC is incredible. The NAC is our National Advisory Council, and it's made up of a variety of different disciplines, um, from emergency management to public health to academia. This year, we added a climate advisor, um, climate specialty into our NAC. And it's important, right? It's important that we have this diverse set of backgrounds and this diverse set of opinions to be able to take a look at how we're either implementing new policy, developing new programs to bring their perspective. And again, back to keeping that customer centric focus and how do we make sure that what we're doing isn't creating additional burden. You know, it's easy to, to sit in an office in the Beltway of DC and come up with a policy or develop a new program. But if you don't have that engagement and outreach, you think it's going to be great, um, but you don't know until you can actually talk to your customers and see how the, how it's actually being perceived. So being able to use them to have some real-time feedback on some of the new things that we're developing is great, but also some of the longer-term um, issues that, that we're seeing how they can take a, the time to 
really dig deep into some of it, talk to our staff and come up with some recommendations how we can continually learn. Uh, we always want to learn as an agency um, because there's so much that's changing around us each and every day. The threats that we're facing are changing, they're emerging, the capacities and the capabilities um, across the nation are changing and we wanna be able to keep up with that um, and, and help make sure that the communities are getting um, the right services that they need from FEMA. Is there an idea that has come out of the NAC that energizes you and makes you think, yes, this is how it should work? Actually, I think when I first came on, um, maybe not exactly the direction you might have been going in this, but when I first took over this position and I first met with the NAC, their ask to me was, we want to be more useful to you, right? We want to be able to help you as you are implementing new policies, be that advisory council, that advisory committee for you. And so we did that. We actually gave them two policies or one policy and, and one um, guidebook that we were developing before we distributed it. We wanted their input based on, again, their diversity of thought, their diversity of backgrounds. And it made a big difference in making sure that we really had the best product we could put out. And so that was their ask. I think it was a great recommendation and we're gonna continue to find ways to utilize the NAC in these, these just-in-time um, policy development, program development pieces instead of, waiting, you know, for a, a report to come out and us to respond to a report and then develop an implementation plan. And um, we need to be able to move fast on some things. And, and I think that they are in the right position to be able to help us do that. Okay. So when the NAC makes a recommendation to you, what is the process for incorporating or rejecting that recommendation? Yeah, so the NAC um, over the last couple of years has really matured how they're developing recommendations to give to the FEMA administrator. Um, the last two years, they've developed a formal report that had some really well thought out and constructed recommendations, the rationale and the background behind it and some of the findings that they observed throughout their year. And what we have done with um, these the last two years reports is that we've come back and really approached it similar to how we approach our GAO reports um, or our IG audits um, and either accepting, partially accepting, or not accepting some of the recommendations that are in there. And providing the rationale behind, like if it's partially accepted, why? Um, but also if there's things that are just out of our control, you know, where can the NAC, because of their unique position, help influence some of the things that we're limited to by statutorily? Is there a bridging technique? Is there a small policy change that perhaps we can make while we're looking to uh, see if there's a legislative fix that can also happen? I think that's our biggest limitation is when we are constricted by something statutorily. And so I think that's been a really great way for us to look at these recommendations that they've been giving us, seeing what we're already doing, but also combining it with a lot of the work that we have been doing through um, our strategic plan, our annual planning guidance, and incorporating that into the work that's already being done. Is there a challenge you've given to the NAC that you're looking forward to hearing back from them on? I think all of the challenges that I've given them, I think, have been great, right? And, and we've kind of taken a different approach this year. It's not uh, individual charges, but what I'm excited about for the way the NAC has been organized this year is that they organized around our strategic plan. And so they've taken the three goals of our strategic plan and are working um, um, within them. They created subcommittees to then talk about from their perspective, again, from their unique perspectives of where they sit and the, the steps and the things that FEMA can do to enact some of the things that we put in that strategic plan. 
Um, but we also, while we have the subcommittees, we have a subcommittee for climate, we have a subcommittee for workforce, and we have a subcommittee for readiness. Equity is also one of our goals, but they did a work group for equity and they integrated it across all of the different subcommittees because it is cross-cutting. And so I'm actually excited to see how all of this comes to bear and how we can actually use their input as we are continually trying to implement the items that we outlined in our strategic plan as well as our annual planning guidance. What does success look like to you when it comes to NAC input with the work that FEMA does? That FEMA becomes better at meeting the needs of the nation. That the, the recommendations that they are, they're putting forth are giving us the opportunity to in, um, incorporate more common sense into the way that we do things. Uh, that we learn to embrace risk a little bit more if it means that we're getting services to those people that need it most. Um, and that we just have an easier time reaching people and breaking down those barriers. Okay, so with that in mind, flash forward 20 years from today. What does FEMA look like now? Oh, 20 years from today, um, I would say if, it, if in Deanne's perfect world, we have invested so much in individual preparedness and mitigation that the types of disasters we're seeing, we're having less impact, which means that we're having shorter recoveries. And the more we can put our time and energy into what we're doing ahead of a disaster and creating more resilient communities means that the amount of time we're needed to respond to and recover from an incident continues to decrease. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast.